Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to episode 32 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this intro on Saturday, January 17th, 2015. Today, I have a special interview guest on the show. His name is Andy Adams. I actually recommended a blog post by Andy a few shows ago in my Pick of the Week segment. Andy saw some traffic coming from my blog, investigated, and we struck up a conversation. My podcast episode number 17 was about going independent and has been one of my most popular, so I felt like Andy could really offer some insight to you that you'd enjoy. For over five years, Andy has been building software to grow his clients' revenues and streamline their businesses. He specializes in Ruby on Rails and big, complex WordPress sites. And now, here's our interview. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for being on my show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. No problem. So one of the things I like to ask everyone when I interview them is, you know, kind of the secret origin story behind your superhero self. So how did you get started in this industry as a developer? You know, why is this your career? How did you get there? Stuff like that. Sure. So it started somewhere around sixth grade with a Pokemon fan website. I Hmm. I can't explain how thrilled I was to post animated GIFs of my Pokemon team to like message boards and my own website. And that was kind of the beginning of everything. And then in high school, I decided I wanted to design computer chips. And I was kind of racking my brain trying to think, why did I pick that? And now I remember there was a teacher who was talking about how computer chip designers made $600,000 per year. I don't know if that's true or not. I really doubt that's true. And at the time, I didn't even know how much money that was, but I just knew I wanted to make that much money. So I I went to college for computer engineering. But in college, I decided to play video games. (laughs) And so I spent my time majoring in Street Fighter 2 Turbo, another big waste of time. (laughs) So after five years of not so hot grades, I, I got engaged and thought like, wow, I better get a job soon. And the only thing I could get was as a web developer because I had basically not learned anything meaningful during my college years. Thanks be to God, getting married made me a lot more mature. So once I actually got that job, I cared about what I was doing and um, I've kind of snowballed it from there. All right. And when was, how long ago was this? That was about six years ago. I mean, if we think about that, like you, so you got started like six years ago, you're doing some web development and you know, you're still working in that field. So how do you stay current? I mean, six years ago, uh, 2008, you know, so much has changed since then. JavaScript frameworks have changed greatly. CSS, HTML5, like all this stuff's advanced. How do you make sure that your skills are current? Especially, you know, as a freelancer, it's extremely important to, to have current skills. How do you make sure that you're current and offering the best value? I'm actually really boring about this. I actually prefer stable, dated, boring technologies like WordPress and Rails. Mm-hmm. That, that's primarily because I, I want stability in my job. I There's always new JavaScript frameworks. There's always new things coming out. But there's not always jobs for those things, and especially freelance jobs. They're, they're kind of limited in new things. But I do stay on top of it. Just by monitoring Hacker News, I follow industry leaders on their blogs, and I don't read everything they say, but whenever they're talking about something new, I make a bookmark out of it, and sometimes I'll remember it later when I'm working on a project that could use it. But nothing, I'm not too revolutionary. I'm pretty boring. I don't learn tons. I just learn enough to stay current. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And with your, any kind of your, anytime you're trading time for money, 
Anything you spend not on what you actually have billable hours for may not be the best uh, use of your time. Yeah. And also having little kids around, they grow up so fast that you don't want to spend any time that you don't have to away from. So learning is, it's nice to do, but comparing learning with going outside and building a snowman with my kids, I'm going to go outside and build a snowman. So tell me a little bit about how did you become an independent freelancer? You know, in that article that I referenced, we met from just, you know, virtually anyway, from from a link I had to your article. And, and that article talked a little bit about just your trials and tribulations of being a freelancer and what to charge. You know, so how did you get to that point? Why did you decide that that's what you were going to do? So I used to be a pretty fiery developer and I had very strong opinions about almost everything. And I had some disagreements with um, my bosses, two, two bosses in particular, which really weren't their faults. It was just miscommunications and actually me being too immature to talk to them like an adult about it. Mm-hmm. But I, of course, being immature, I, I figured I can venture out on my own. I, I, I want to do this. I want to be my own boss. And at, at the same time, I saw freelancers in, at one job. We hired a freelancer who was charging $100 an hour. And he was telling us that he was going to raise his rate soon. And I, I, $100 an hour, I still didn't have a grasp of what that meant, but I knew it sounded like a lot. So I figured I'd take my stab at freelancing and maybe I could get up there. I, I, I did secretly want to build my own products. I had this dream of passive income, just rolling in and, and living off of that and being able to spend time crafting products that I enjoyed. I failed miserably in every attempt to do so, but that was kind of the the motivation for going self-employed because you, it's hard to work on products when you're working on someone else's product too. When I first became a freelancer, I think much like you, I was contracted by my former employer. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't burn the bridges of one of my <laughs> employers. I, as I transitioned out, they hired me. And then I'm, I had a friend who had a small software company and I owe it to him because he gave me a big project to start without me being well-tested in the freelancing space. And the project didn't turn out very well, but he took a chance on me and I actually still have to repay him for it. It's on my list of things to do. Nice. You, you mentioned imposter syndrome in your pricing article, and it's something that we talked about on the show before back in episode 19. Can you tell me like, how you've approached pricing, maybe for people who haven't seen the article, how imposter syndrome factored into that maybe at the beginning and maybe even still today? And how you've overcome that and how you're dealing with it. My freelancing career has been just a list of how not to price your services. It's been a big learning process. So the first thing that I did was I charged what I thought people could afford. Mm -hmm. So I went to, this was actually prior to going completely independent. I went to local restaurants and I said, this guy, this poor restaurant's barely making it. They couldn't possibly pay more than $250 for a website. And I probably spent 40 to 60 hours on that website, and they still ended up redoing it afterwards. So working below minimum wage didn't work out too well. So I started to look at the market rates after I went fully independent, and I went from $50 an hour to 75 and then back to 60 because that $75 project didn't go very well. And then back up to 75 again, and then 85 and I felt like I was really doing well, and then that didn't that project didn't go well. So I moved it back down to 75. And all this time, I knew that there's developers charging $100 an hour plus. In fact, I knew developers charging $350 an hour. But I just didn't 
believe I was worth it. My my wife would go crazy because I, I would say, oh, look at this guy. He's can you believe this? His guy's charging three fifty an hour. And she would go, well, why don't you? And I would start in with, oh, well, because the, I, he's he's got experience doing this and he's just well known and I couldn't possibly get to that point. And it's kind of logical because who do you know in your daily life that charges that much money, 250, 350 an hour? Maybe lawyers. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, an appliance, you, you, we have a guy that mows our lawn and we have guys who fix our appliances and things like that. And they charge at the most 60 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of assume that these guys who are charging a bunch of money have something special about them that you just can't achieve yourself. But there's one person in particular, his name's Patrick McKenzie. You may have heard of him, but he goes by Patio 11. And his, I guess his personality helped me break through. If you don't know him, he's this uh, geeky programmer guy. And he started out building bingo card creation software. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And he charges 30,000 per week now. It used to be 20. Now he just upped it to 30 arbitrarily. And he has to turn away clients at times. And so the first time I watched the video with him mentioning his rates, I was like, wow. And then the second time it was like, wow. And then the next time it was like, I got to do that. I got to be like this guy because he's just like me. He's a humble, geeky programmer guy who charges untold amounts of money. And I guess it was just a matter of seeing somebody else doing it. The first thing you have to do, at least the first thing that I had to do, was accept, internalize that you can charge more. There are people charging more. They are doing it. And that'll help you break out of the imposter, the fears a little bit. Just knowing that there's people doing it and they're Mm -hmm. pretty much average people. They're just doing a good job. The market for programmers is crazy right now. What do you do? So obviously I've heard some people say, if you're in Des Moines, charging that much money may not work for some companies that are there. But if you can branch out a little bit, especially with the ability for developers to work remotely, there are companies all over the country and you know you widen your base of, of people to pull from. Uh, has that been your experience? Are you, are you pulling clients from all over the place? Like, How do you find the clients outside of, you know, you mentioned your first one and the same way I got my first one was a, you know, direct networking and that'll always work to a certain degree. But how do you find clients that are people maybe you've never met before? What, what avenues do you pursue? And what are some ways that people who are looking to do what you've done can find base of clients enough that they can support their family. You you bring up an interesting point about local stuff. I a little while ago I would have said that doing a local development business is pretty much impossible. I live in North Idaho, mm-hmm. which is like one of the lowest cost of living and standard of living. Just wages here are really depressed. So you see posting on Craigslist all the time for, you know, they want developers full time for 12 bucks an hour or something like that. Wow. It's pretty bad up here. But recently I've come across these little um, gold mines, I guess, up in North Idaho, where there are businesses who can pay for services locally. You just have to be looking. You can't go to mom and pops in, in local areas. You have to go to the same types of businesses that you would go to anywhere else that can afford developers. For example, there's a hospital up here who recently contracted with a local agency. They, they hired the entire agency for a year to design a logo. And I mean, they have money to throw at problems, you know, so mm-hmm. you can build businesses locally. However, 
you don't have to as a developer. And in fact, most of my clients are from London, LA, San Francisco, big cities where there's more money floating around. So I find client um, primarily, well, it started with online job boards. There's, there's kind of an art to applying to jobs online, but when you find the right ones and you're able to filter out the crummy ones, there actually are some good opportunities on there, at least for people getting started. And then after that, it's mostly through referrals. I kind of wanted to elaborate on that because so many developers think that once they've got the contract that they're done or, you know, that they've, that they've secured the work. But if you do a really good job on your projects, that's where the referrals start snowballing on top of each other. About half of my work last year came from projects where people did a really bad job where a developer basically bailed on a project or left it in this state that was like not really finished. Mm -hmm. And after that job was done, that developer went off and had to go find a new, new job. They couldn't use that project. They weren't getting referrals from that project because they left everyone kind of unhappy with it. So if you can just do a good job and make your clients thrilled with the, with the work that you're doing, one single job that I've done a, that I worked hard on ended up leading to dozens of referrals after that. So it's so unreliable out there for a lot of developers. Just I don't know if it's bad people skills or they're lazy or what it is exactly, but they just bail on projects. And if you be the guy who, if you can be the guy who finishes projects, you can basically create unlimited lead generation for yourself. No, that's good. What's realistic, you know, between yourself and maybe some people that you know for a percentage of your time that becomes billable? Not necessarily in a week, but is it if you go from contract to contract or project to project? Do, have you found because and I mean this rolls a little bit into rate as well, being sure that you cover all of your time throughout the year. Do you find that you have a gig basically half the time? You know, six months a year are you working? Or are you working eight months a year or nine months or ten months? Or all, all the time? Like, is it enough that you basically keep yourself busy the entire time? You know, what's a realistic and what should people expect as they step into this? Well, th- there's kind of two parts to that. First of all, you're just human limitations are going to prevent you from working a whole lot more than six hours a day mm-hmm. in general. I think, I mean, if you're, if you're doing selling and if you're learning new things and you're sending invoices and negotiating contracts, that's always going to take up a bunch of time. So you're probably not going to get more than six, and I would realistically say four hours a day of uh, billable time. That's assuming that you're not a workaholic and working from the moment you wake up till you sleep. I, I do nine hours a day just for sanity, for sanity purposes. But there's always, even experienced developers, even experienced agencies have slow months. I, I would, I'm not super experienced with it, but I would say you can expect at least two months of no work. Mm-hmm. per year. You always want to be selling though. So this is this goes back to lead generation and finding new work. You always even if you feel like you're pretty booked for the next month or two, go ahead and apply to those jobs that you see out there that you're a good fit for and go ahead and still reach out to old clients and, and do business development because even if it ends up that you're not a good fit for the job that's available right now, you want to be in people's minds for down the line. So you should always be selling. And if you're always selling, you can conceivably always be overbooked or at least always have people trying to get you to work, Yeah, which is the ideal. Uh, right now, 
the market for developers is very, very hot. So if you're, if you're doing quality work, there's no reason that you have to have a slow period, in my opinion. Okay, so I know you value soft skills. It's something that we, we've communicated a little bit about. And it's an important part of being an independent developer. We talked about them back in episode 30. Tell me how you came to realize how they were important. You know, you mentioned a little bit of a bridge burning, you know, at, at the end slash beginning <laughs> of where you're at. But now, I mean, you mentioned lead generation. You mentioned, you know, business development kind of stuff. So there's obviously client interaction, negotiation skills, stuff like that. So just talk to me a little bit about that, about, you know, how you came to value it and what you see is, is maybe most valuable and how you, how did you get good at it? Like, where do you, where do you learn that sort of thing? Oh boy. Well, now that I'm past my aggressive, angry days and I'm, I'm a mellower dad, I, I've kind of become naturally friendly. I want to treat my friend, my clients as friends, um, not, not great friends, but I am interested in their success and even some of their personal life. Like I send my clients Christmas cards and things like that to just kind of keep a personal touch on it. The development of soft skills came when I was on calls with other developers. Like I would be grouped with another freelancer on a project and we'd be on a call with a client and they would talk in technical jargon. They were very blunt and cold and condescending. And I, the, the clients would be extremely, you know, defensive and they, they, didn't, they didn't enjoy working with these people. And I contrasted that with some agencies that I was working with who weren't putting out very technically incredible stuff. They were using very, um, they were using lots of WordPress plugins to build things for clients. They were doing very little custom work and it wasn't exactly riveting, but the agencies had these incredible interpersonal skills with their clients and they had ways of diffusing tense situations and they were really nice guys and they were really good salesmen that it clicked to me that 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 that's how you get to those higher value clients like if if you want any if you want a client who doesn't treat you like a coding monkey you have to they have to like you they have to trust you with the success of their projects and you've frankly got to be pretty nice for the vast majority of positions you have to be nice you can't be like the blunt tell it like it is developer, you have to be charitable and gentler in how you describe things to people, even if they are being idiots. You just, you have to have the, the, the social skills to navigate those tricky situations. That's the quickest, I just saw it as a way to grow business, really. Yeah. I mean, that and being, I, I like to be friends and friendly with people. And we've been talking, we've talked about, with one little exception, basically how things have been going well for you uh, and, you know, your, kind of your successes and wins. Have you had any false starts or mistakes that you've made as a freelancer that you feel like uh, could help young people avoid the, you know, similar mistakes? Like, for instance, my biggest mistake was I accidentally revealed a business partner's costs and markup to a client and basically ruined their leverage in negotiation, which, you know, sucked. Uh, you know, it was embarrassing. <laughs> uh, you know, is there, is there anything that you're willing to own up to that maybe you could help someone realize just some mistakes you made with maybe client interaction, maybe, you know, naivety, that, you know, anything like that? Yeah, let me clear that clear one thing up for that. My business has been nothing but um, false starts and failures, really. And and many of them nearly end a freelancing career. The biggest one is if you're just starting off as a freelancer and you've never had to bid products before, 
trying to bid fixed bid contracts is a recipe for disaster and for stress and for the end of your career if you're depending on the income. Yeah. If you can, try subcontracting for an agency as one of the first jobs that you get. It'll give you insight into a bunch of things. It'll let you see how productive you are based on your hourly rate. Um, like if you, for example, if you say, oh, this will take me 20 hours and it takes you 10, you've just d- justified doubling your rate, basically. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to see all of the extra junk that and that comes at the end of projects that you didn't account for. Things like handing it off to the client, education, documentation, things like that. Yeah. And if you have to do a fixed bid contract, like someone saying, I need a price for this thing, just estimate how long it'll take you, get your hourly rate now, and then triple the estimate of the time. Just straight up, like triple it and send that to your client. And if they say no, then no worries. Because these days I do double, basically. I I estimate how long something's going to take and then I just double it arbitrarily. And I'm still wrong a lot to my own detriment. So if you've never done it before, way you should be way overestimating your uh, fixed bid projects. Some of that stuff you said there, that's gold. Uh, you know, realizing that people don't think about a handoff, clients expect, you know, if you're an independent developer and you're not working as part of a larger project team without BAs or some people like that, you know, and you're not used to turning over documentation, you, well, my code's self-documenting. That doesn't help the end user. Who are you training? Are you training the trainers? Who's performing that training? Is it you? Is it, are you going to have to hire someone else? Is it someone you're partner with? Is it, all those things that you didn't think about, like you said, just small cleanups, like I'm done, but bug fixes take longer or realizing the clients might be picky about pixel shifting, you know, and sit there and saying, well, this, everything needs to move slightly to the left. And no, I like it pink. You know, I would think like that. Yeah. You know, so there's so much stuff that, that can get you right at the end. That this goes into what I said earlier about doing a good job. I don't want to understate that. By tripling your rate, by tripling what you bid on stuff, or at least getting a, a feel through an agency about um, how productive you actually are, you can't do a good job unless if you have enough of a cushion, mm-hmm. basically. So the, the, some of my earliest projects were that were failures were because I underbid them and I had to cut it off at some point just for my own financial stability. And those are the ones that leave clients unhappy and nobody nobody is better off at the end of it. So yeah, just if you don't know what to expect yet, and if you're new to it, then pad your estimates a whole bunch. I say triple them. And that will enable you to do a good job to learn from doing a good job. And then the next time you'll, have, you'll be better equipped. You mentioned early one of the things that you wanted to do as an independent person was build your own product and stuff like that. Do you have any advice for people who want to build their own like software as a service, info product, just straight up product, like things like that? Do you have any advice for people who want to tackle that or what's been your experience there? Yes, this has been probably the biggest downfall of self-employment for me was that I wanted to and I still want to sell my own products because passive income sounds absolutely lovely and just having money come in every month without doing the same amount of work for it seems really cool. But somehow it, it slipped my mind that it takes a really long time to build a product business. I tried building a recipe website. Mm-hmm. I tried building a nonprofit donor database. And my strategy was like, first of all, I do the fun stuff, like coding it for two or three months, coding it, user interface design. And then after that, I would write a few blog posts and call it content marketing. 
and then there's a big question mark, right? And then profit, right? Yeah. So that that was my strategy. And it sounds so silly now, but I still get emails from developers who are launching their own products that I can just see all of the telltale signs of the didn't know how to build a product business problem creeping up. And they, it takes a really long time. So if you're going to do it and you're really set on it, make sure you have an income stream, freelancing or, or something else, or a huge amount of savings maybe, to support it. I really recommend uh, a talk by Gail Goodman uh, from Constant Contact called The Long Slow Software as a Service Ramp of Death, <laughs> where she <Yeah>. basically <laughs> talks about how they grew incredibly slowly with venture capital and how there was no you know, spike in growth and all of a sudden they were free to you know, live off of the profits. It was a, it's a really slow process and it's something that it took me three or four products to realize. So don't burn all your savings on a product idea if you don't have to. No, that's good. What about, what else? Would you have any other tips, tricks, resources? I mean, they would check out that uh, the constant contact speech and, and, and anything else there. Any kind of resources, anything like that for anyone who's considering a switch to freelancing or anything like that? Yeah. Um, one thing you should do is set monthly goals for income. If you're like me, it's easy to get caught up in like, you just signed a big project and the, the life is good right now. I must be doing really good. I'm making it. And then the, ne- the next month comes along and you realize you didn't quite make as much as you expected. Either the hours got shorter or the project took longer. So you only got half of the money. Set monthly goals that if you don't reach them, you start doing more selling, getting more projects, things like that. I went for a good year and a half without setting any goals and it was just feast or famine because of it. A second tip would be to limit the hours you work to a nine-hour period. A lot of freelancers will work around the clock, and they, their, their work-life distinction becomes really blurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and freelancing, because there's, so, there's, there's unlimited potential in how much you can make, it will consume you. And you'll think that I, if I just work another hour, I can make another 50 bucks or 100 bucks. But you'll do crummier work because you're tired, I think. That, that's been my experience. I have three small children, so that might be lack of sleep too. But even, <laughs> yeah. but I, I just don't think that you can do consistently good work for 16 hours a day and it'll cause burnout. So if you just say, I'm going to work nine to five every day and at five o'clock, I'm shutting off my email and I'm not going to work. I think it will do a lot for your health and happiness and for your business because you'll be able to do much better work. You'll be motivated to finish things in that nine hour period. And uh, the last thing would be, after I wrote my post about pricing, a lot of people were writing me about, they're asking me personal questions like, how, how do I make more money? How do I get more leads? I want to be a freelancer so bad. But what they, I don't think that they were thinking about was that freelancing is really a means to an end. And, one, mm-hmm. and besides being able to make as much money as you want, the other big advantage is that you can set your own schedule and you have flexibility. And this is something that I battle frequently. I'm, I'm overly ambitious. But if I had unlimited money, what would I do with my time? It's worth asking yourself that. You know, for me, it would probably be spending more time with my family. And so why am I not doing that? It's kind of cliche to say that, but it, I'm a very family-oriented person and I still get caught up in signing more contracts and making more money. And I could be living what I want to do right now. 
No, it makes sense. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pat Flynn from the Smart Passive Income podcast, but one of the things he talks about is what's his why, mm-hmm. and his why is his family and his kids, and that's why he's doing it. And if doing it takes too much time away from the why he's doing it for, then things are out of whack, and he needs to adjust and needs to always remember that and prioritize that. Yeah, and that sounds like what you're saying as well. Yeah, if you're not interested in sales and marketing and 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 things like that and contracts, then freelancing may not be the best thing for you to do. If you're interested in the programming stuff and more, then maybe you should take a full-time or a part-time remote job or something like that. That would give you the stability while you work on your own side projects if that's what you want to do. Because if you if you go into freelancing for, the, for a reason like that, like I like to program and I want to work on my craft more and I want to have control over what I do, you're probably going to be disappointed pretty quickly with how little programming you get to do. So that's that's a good tip. That's something that you know people who oh I don't want the ninety five grind. I don't want to do this. But it's possible that maybe really what they want is a remote position, which does offer a little more flexibility with how you go about your day. You know maybe that's what they want rather than freelance, like you said, with all the extra things that comes with yeah. That. That's that's an important distinction. Um, so is there anything else as we wrap up that you'd like to promote? Let us know how people can find you, blog, Twitter, get a hold of you for contracting, anything like that at all? Absolutely, yeah. I'm writing a book about uh, WordPress freelancing from the perspective of someone who wants to build kind of a foundation for their business. I I monitor a lot of job boards and WordPress jobs are all over the place, but it's not like something you can get rich from. But if you're like me and you need a stable foundation, it's hard to find something better than WordPress. So I'm writing a book about that. I also am writing on my blog. If you've never heard of me, which you probably never have, I'd recommend starting with the post I wrote about pricing. It will help you break out of any shackles you have on yourself. Uh, Hopefully, that was my goal at least. On Twitter, I'm Andy on software. Totally a copycat. Uh, Very nice name. I think you're a genius. Yeah, my name is really common, so I just... Andy, what am I writing about? On software. There you go. Good enough. And uh, I'm, I'm a web developer. So if you or anyone you know needs a web developer, I'm always selling and I'm always available. Excellent. Again, thank you very much for coming on. I think you've just a ton of value, ton of information. I think people are really going to appreciate it. And I certainly appreciate you and your time. Thank you so much, Pete. All right. Thanks. Again, I'd like to offer huge thanks to Andy for coming on the podcast. From first interaction to recording was only a few days. And Andy was very gracious to make time in his schedule to sit and talk with me. He offered so much value on the interview, and I'm very fortunate to have him. My pick of the week this week is actually a thread on Hacker News called Ask Hacker News How to Get Started with Paying Side Projects. It seemed topic appropriate for us here, so I thought I'd share. The link is in the show notes, or you could just search Hacker News or Google for that title. The question was, I am a full-time software developer with 15 years of industry experience. At this point in my career, it seems like I can do more than what I do at my day job. What are some of the ways that I can get started on software side projects to have fun and for additional income stream? There are some great answers there, so if you're interested, check it out. Thanks again for listening, and thanks again to Andy for his time. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can find me on Twitter as at Pete on Software or on my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.